Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to another edition of Word in Your Ear, the godfather of British independent labels, immediate home of the small faces and the nice and Nico and P.P. Arnold and various others, had a wonderful slogan, which was happy to be part of the industry of human happiness. And this small but perfectly formed book delightfully explains why. And we're joined by its author, Simon Spence. Simon, it's lovely to see you. Yeah, good morning. It's uh, nice to see you both again. Uh, I'm I'm glad you had me back because last time I had a bookshelf behind me and the highlight of the hour talking about Steve Marriott was me knocking the books down accidentally. All right. Very memorable. uh, (laughs) Memorable. Can't be done again. (laughs) No, no, I rambled on about Steve Marriott. You know, it was... It was it was delayed during the pandemic and it was sort of like a bit distant from me, whereas this immediate book is much more, I guess it's much more personal and uh, it's much more recent, you know, so. Well, we're going to start by saying that, um, you know, immediate obviously was, was co-founded by Tony Calder and Andrew Older, the former Stones manager. And uh, a lot of it's based around your, your this book is, is based around your interviews with, with Andrew Oldham and with whom you built quite a relationship because you were the, ghostwriter or co-author of Stoned and Two Stoned, weren't you, his memoirs. So how did that come about? How did you get to meet him and work with him? Well, I'm prepared this time because... uh, All right, there's your books. There's Stoned and Two Stoned. So Andrew says, I remind him of the son he never wanted. (laughs) That was his quote about me in 91. I reciprocate in the immediate book by saying... He, he was like the father figure to me. He was like a father that I can't even remember what I wrote now, but he was like the father I never wanted. You know, it was like that. It's been a long relationship with Andrew for, for 42 years now. I've known. But how did you get to be working with him? How did that come about? 32. 32. Um, I met him. Uh, when I was a young journalist in London and I was writing for The Face magazine. And um, 
a proposed going to Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, where he lives, and um, and interviewing for the face. And that's the first time I met him, ninety-one, out in Bogota. And I write about it in the book. It was no sleep for seven days, and a lot of a lot of excess. And uh, and then we kept in contact. And in ninety-six, he was in Argentina producing. The Ratones Paranoicos, who uh, the Paranoid Mice, because they were all, they're Argentina's biggest band, like U2 in Argentina. And uh, he was producing them and he'd had a lifestyle change and he got clean. And we, we started in earnest on Stoned and Two Stoned in 96. So that was four years of pretty intense work to 2000. Good fun. And, uh, and we've kept in touch since, ups and downs. Can I do this, Andrew? No. Uh, you're, you're, you know, he can be quite as... Mercurial. Yeah. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to swear, but... Yeah, I'm just picking a word out of the air, yeah. <laughs> Correct, yeah. So it's been a long... It's, it's a difficult relationship. It's like, uh, I stand corrected, 42 years... 1991, so 32 years I've known him, and uh, for me, is is number one. You know, is like I, I did talk about Steve Marriott, but and kids today, you know, you you say the Rolling Stones, okay, you've got their attention. You say the Rolling Stones manager, and immediately they're onto TikTok to something else. You know, so, so it's difficult. I don't know. Like when we're doing these kind of things, and you two have had long, distinguished careers in music journalism, it's it's of interest to me, the manager and the producer of the Rolling Stones and the first independent record label. But I'm not sure how much it resonates with youngsters today. That's why the book is pocket-sized. Yeah. Because... You haven't got room on your shelf for loads of books, particularly <laughs> big books. Whereas <laughs> kids today, you can put it in your pocket and say someone's coming at you with an air rifle. Yeah, that could stop a bullet. <laughs> and a machete. Right, no, we got the message here. Yeah. That could, it could save your in life. In many so ways, a useful and kids. practical book. Keep it on the tube, keep it on the... No, uh, that's good. So look, Oldham, I just want to ask you one question about Oldham, is that, and we're going to get on to immediate in a moment, and the control he had in every aspect of immediate was fantastic, but it's the same with the Stones in a way. Do you think the Stones would ever have succeeded without him being the person who who decided the the composition of the group and what they were going to play and what they looked like and the publicity? It was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah, no, no, Andrew Luke Oldham. Uh, no Rolling Stones. Uh, True, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's yeah. unquestionable, isn't it, really? Yeah. I mean, because he took them when he was 19. He was only 19 when he became their manager. And he uh, that was 1963. And 63 to 67, I mean, was just this golden period, wasn't it, for mm. the Stones. And, and, and that, that's what their career was really built on, you know, I mean, and it's still going on, you know, Ruby Tuesday, let's spend the night together, paint it black, satisfaction. I mean, these are all Andrew Lou Golden productions, you know, Uh, but I, I feel 
I will say very much like immediate was a two fingers, you know, because before the happiness to be happy, the, it was the little bastard, you know, that was the strap line because they were two fingers up to the establishment. So I why, did, why did he bother? I mean, you would have thought you'd be immensely busy being the manager of the Rolling Stones and, you know, you're 21 years old or whatever he was by then. And why start a record company? You know, nobody else did it. Why did why did they want to do it? Did they, they want to get rich? I don't think money was the driving force initially. I think Andrew and Tony, the co-founders, had spent a lot. Well, Andrew particularly had spent a lot of time in America and he'd seen... He'd struggled with his productions, apart from the Rolling Stones, with Decca Records. So Marianne Faithful was a hit for Andrew. But he had other bands like the Poets from Glasgow, who John Lennon loved. They, he had struggles with Decca to get the promotion, right. you know, so he felt it, the records he was producing outside of the Stones. And Decca Records thought Andrew was mad as a hatter. I mean, he was, mm. no doubt about it. But... He was producing great records. So they kind of put up with him for the Stones, seven consecutive number ones in the UK, seven, and about five in America, it's consecutive UK. And that's just the singles, the albums. Seven in US, nine, in 63 to 67, nine US number one albums. But just to, on the point of, of why he started the label, I mean, some of it must have been to do with a idealistic thing about... I mean, the general consensus was that the big labels were kind of ripping off and taking advantage of the innocent young groups. Yeah. So was there some element of, we're going to run a, a label here, run by people the same age as you, and you're going to get a better deal? And Was that, was that part of it, do you think? It's so difficult for me to go back to that what it was like in 65 1965 but i think it was i think that was part of that what you can't really bottle the essence of that i guess it was a revolution you know cultural revolution you know i, I and i think that was part of it you know it was no i mean he used to andrew used to call the record labels funeral parlors so it was like taking the American influence and bringing it to England and just having like a lot of fun. And uh, I think by, by the time he started immediate records in 65 satisfaction was number one. He was a millionaire. Like you say, he was only 21 and he was already quite heavily into drugs and drink. And, uh, so while part of it was idealistic, I guess he thought he could walk on water. Absolutely, I'm sure, absolutely. Yeah. But he yeah. also there's a there's a there's an element of it, it. You kind of think that it was going to be intensely fashionable, intensely hip, which it was because it was you know his image and Tony's image to a lesser extent. But actually, you know, groups. I mean, the first big hit was "Hang On Sloopy," wasn't it by the uh, by the the, the the McCoys? So yeah, I'll uh, spare your rendition of that. Was that? I'll spare you a rendition of that. You know. <laughs> Fair enough. But uh, so it wasn't just about image. It's just a lot of it was to do with, with kind of his commercial ear, wasn't it, for a hit? Well, um, yeah, because that came from Burt Burns, Twist and Shout, Burt Burns. So it was already a number one in America. 
and he was a friend of Andrew's. So Bert Burns became part of the media. I mean, it was really just a gathering of people around Andrew and the Stones. Um, but in terms of image, I think they were always... I think from day one, image was a, was almost as important as the music because yeah, you know they had Nico. Yeah. For the first, the second single was Nico. Two years before she joined the Velvet Underground, so she looked the part. Nico. Uh, I'm not saying the single was because Jimmy Page was the staff producer, so Jimmy Page and Andrew wrote that Nico song. So I guess it was a, a gathering of. Of people who I guess were hip, you know. I mean, Andrew the Stones, Steve Marriott the Small Faces, Nico, and uh, and Tony and Andrew. I mean, that was really the core of it at the start. And Tony King, who yeah. uh, who's, who's re recently re released a book, was yeah. There so, as well. well, there's a lot of these people we've spoken to on this podcast. Yeah, actually. yeah. Because Gerard Mankiewicz uh, obviously was the kind of 20-year-old photographer who, who created the images of loads of these people, you know. Yeah, so Gerard Mankiewicz was another at the start. So it is this core of it, it people is. who have yeah. actually... Because it, it was... Some of the independent labels, I think, have a problem with you know, flashing the pan. But if you look at the careers of everyone involved in a media... Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, um, Andrew Tony, The Stones, Steve Marriott, like we say, uh, Garrett, uh, Tony King. All these people have got hugely impressive careers. So it's it's a pretty heavy label, you know. I mean, At Atlantic is a heavy label, right, in America. I mean, the media is a pretty heavy label. But the interesting thing to me about reading your book, and it is fascinating, is I kind of lived through this period and I wasn't aware of half of these singles that came out, you know what I mean? And uh, because they obviously he adopted a policy uh, based on having been a record plugger, I suppose, or a PR man, which is if you can't get radio behind any of these things, forget it, just move on to the next thing. So a lot of these records are hardly pressed. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, yeah, there's an incredible, uh, there's an incredible uh, catalogue, and 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 they did move on fast. So you'll get the the turtles, you baby, or the changing of the guard, which was the Kinks, the Who, you know, or Green Circles. Yeah. So all these artists are recording stuff for immediate Rod Stewart, recording uh, Scott Walker. Recording for a media, a Fleetwood Mac recording for a media, yeah. but it was all quite. As Andrew got faster and faster and faster, you know the label got faster and faster and faster. So, I think uh, it was recently reviewed by uh, Dan Brown, uh, who turned Tony Wilson onto punk, and he said, "Thank you for turning me onto the." I'm not sure he'll thank me later. Thank, thank you for turning me on to twice as much right. a, a mid-67 Beach Boys-esque uh, group. Uh, and another maybe Billy Nichols, who, who's great, Billy Nichols, you know. So there are some gems on that, on media, on the label. But Andrew had an absolute genius for uh, for publicity, which you talk about a lot, which is fun. We'll talk about his own personal publicity in a minute. But, I mean, there was things like... <laughs> 
you know, selling Chris Farlow's out of time as being something produced by Mick Jagger was a brilliant manoeuvre because it wasn't, was it? I mean, Mick Jagger was Mick Jagger really involved. I might have co-written the song, but he wasn't involved in the production. But well, it was the same. It's similar to the um, the first the first debut solo Keith Richard album, you know, which came out in '65. And that was like, he, he said, Andrew said, oh, it's the first for any Beatle or any Stone. It's a debut solo album. Now, whether Keith Richards actually was in the studio or <laughs> his name was <laughs> on the, the Keith cover. Keith Richards Orchestra <laughs> record. His name, same as Mick's name was, and there yeah. was a photograph of Mick with his arm round um, Chris Farlow. Yeah. So it was all about pushing Mick and Keith early Which on. was the Keith record? Was it the Keith Richards Orchestra album? Was that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Was, I think in the end it, it got called Keith Richard and the R&B Orchestra, something like yeah. that. Uh, but yeah, first a debut solo album by Keith Richard. So I know, because someone mentioned it, that Talk Is Cheap is meant to be his first solo album, but it's definitely this one. And and he's got and they've got Sam Cooke as well, uh, Twinkle. You know, it's just an incredible record, Twinkle. And they, they they've also got. Um, I was fascinated by the story of uh, is it Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton jamming that that album that came out, which you know that they, they all say that oh it was taped behind the sofa. Eric Clapton didn't even know he was making a record, but and it then came they out immediately. Did yeah, they fall? Yeah, Did Eric Clapton was, was he furious that Jimmy Page had given the tapes to Immediate or whatever? Well, Jimmy Page was very young when he started at Immediate. He was sixty-five. But interestingly, Immediate often paired Jimmy Page with John Paul Jones. So a good slew of those early Immediate recordings are kind of proto Led Zepp. I mean, it's the mm-hmm. two guys from Led Zepp. But um, I think I think with that. You know, when we said uh, Immediate started and it was, uh, you know, the big record labels were ripping off the small, uh, were ripping off the artists. That's true. So the royalties went from 2% for the Beatles and then Small Face was 5%. But at the same time, Immediate were also quite gangsterish. Yes, this is it. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, so illegal recordings of Eric Clapton as done by Jimmy Page and they did fall out about it and I do yeah. think Jimmy Page probably got caught up in a bit of Tony Calder was very wide I mean Tony Calder very wide and Tony Jimmy Page was more friendly with Tony than he was with Andrew so perhaps Jimmy got caught up in a bit of that rough and tumble. With Peter Grant, it's all you know. It's all the same thing, isn't it? You know, they, they, yeah, they and Don Arden later on. With they, the, they were they were broader than Broadway. The yeah, people you know, no doubt about it at all. I yeah, remember that's, that, that's the way it was. Yeah, you refer to in this book. I, I think you were probably. I first met Andrew Oldham in in the early nineties when he was trying to relaunch Immediate in the UK. Was that immediate three or something he was yeah, trying to three, do? It. Yeah. And he was based in a hotel just off um, Sloan Square in Chelsea, holding court. 
very, very much chemically, chemically heightened and, you know, talking up for all it was worth. And his whole attitude was, and he said, if you didn't want to be ripped off, why are you in the record business? You know, because that's the way, it just goes with the territory. You know, that seemed to be his attitude. Is that what you found? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That was a particularly dark period for Andrew. I would say it was difficult for him after the Rolling Stones because I think Nick Cohen said it, you know, how do you follow that? How do you follow those monsters? You know, what do you do for the rest of your life? You've cut your monsters by the time you're 21. What do you do for the rest of your life? And I think maybe got through the 70s and um, and the 80s were difficult. And I think then the 90, early 90s, he was uh, in quite a state he was in quite, uh, we know he was, you know, because I'd seen him privately, you know, when with the Primal Scream wrecking crew, you know, which was which was as bad as his behaviour in those hotels that you talk about. I mean, the publicity. Uh, we'd started working on Stoned then. And um, I mean, I will try and say not mercurial, but I will say he can be, he could be a bit of a cunt. <laughs> I'm sure, you know. <laughs> but then and again, I write that in the book. He could be, and and he what he was. I mean, it, when they say to me in the bookshops, "What was he like?" What I'd love to know. I bet that's interesting. I say, yeah, he was like king of the cuts. But did, but I mean, do you you could argue so, that you needed in a way, to be in a way. You talk about him signing the small faces, so. Uh, you know, legend has it that, uh, that, that the deal was done with £25,000 in a paper bag delivered to Don Arden. I mean, is, is, that, uh, is that the case or, I mean, or is that just ap- apocryphal? No, I think uh, what happened was uh, 
Don had got them tied to Decker somehow, and uh, he said he could get them free from Decker. So that was Don. Andrew got Alan Klein to... Uh, I don't know how he got money in those days. Telex him. I don't think it was that, but I don't know, maybe Telex him £25,000 from yep. Stone's earnings. Don't forget, Alan Klein had said in 1967, the Stones were going to gross £30 million. So Andrew was quids in. So he got £25,000 and he put it in a brown envelope and he gave it to Don. And Don got them free of Decker. But that was a new lease of life for the small faces, wasn't it? Yeah, the yeah. most, the, the biggest advance uh, paid for anyone apart from the Yardbirds, who I think got about the same amount. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, an industry record. Because you are thinking, I don't know, I'm flippant about the 60s a little bit, but, you know, CBS on in America were going great guns with Janis Joplin and uh, Bob Dylan and stuff. So you kind of are looking at, but at music industry history, I guess you know UK. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to small faces for a second, it looked to me from reading your book that he applied exactly the same technique to small faces as did the Stones. Really, that he came in there, he told them what to play. He was running their A and R. He was, you know, overseeing the look of the group and shaped them in, 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 from every for every angle. Would that be? Is that true? I would say so, but in a in a slightly more mature way than he had with the Stones, like yeah. more of a back seat. So I think he was very controlling, wasn't he, of the Rolling Stones? He was. I mean, that famously they well, famously <laughs> he sacked Ian Stewart because his chin was too big. This is it. Yeah. You know, I mean, his chin was too big, so he sacked him. This is like straight away. Then he said, "You've got to put the G back on the end of the stuff." of the Rolling Stone. Then he, he famously made Mick and Keith write songs, locked them in a room together and said, you aren't coming out. I mean, these are apocryphal stories, but they are true. And then, so satisfaction, they said, oh no, we're not having that, Andrew. It's And, and Andrew just stuck it out. Satisfaction, produced by Andrew Lou Goldham. Um, well, out of time, didn't it? Out of time, Chris Farlow, they didn't think was a single. No, so Andrew is an incredible figure. If you think yeah, about it, it's an incredible yeah. figure. And with the small faces, he wouldn't put produced by Andrew Lou Goldham on those sleeves like he did with the Stones. But he was there and always around in the studio if needed. And then he would go in and he would, for instance, he picked Lazy Sunday as a single, you know, when the group didn't really want didn't, that. That's right. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's like one of the defining 60s hits, really, Lazy Sunday. Isn't the central, isn't the key thing in the immediate story, and the reason it stopped, um, because the small faces didn't make it in America, Uh, I, I, yeah, I think that was a key issue. Yeah, yeah, the key, maybe the key moment, you know, when it could have gone either way, you know. It, like Tony, when I, I, I kept in touch with Tony as well through his later life, and Tony died only a couple of years ago. And uh, still Tony and Andrew would have said we could have been like Virgin 
Yeah. And yeah. we could have, I don't know what version. <laughs> well, if you, you needed tubular bells, don't you? You, you yeah. know, you need a yeah. few of those. And that's the problem with independent labels. You need a, you need a steady stream of hits. And, and you don't get them. You get one big one, then you get nothing, then you get another big one. And it's very difficult to manage that process. And, and with the second deal that they had, because the first deal they had was with Philips, where Philips were taking the entire financial risk, weren't they? And then the second deal they had was with EMI, where they were taking the financial risk. Is that the case? Uh yeah, with EMI, it was they were both distribution deals for the UK. But with it, when they they went from sixty five to sixty seven with Philips, but then sixty seven, EMI was they wanted to expand into Europe, and I think at the time EMI had different offices in every European country. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then they, Andrew and Tony invented this thing where they would travel around Europe, meeting all these labels. Uh, and the managing director of EMI at the time, Ken East, said, actually, immediate was a great help bringing EMI together to be, you know, more of a coherent one mm-hmm. in in Europe. But uh, they all said America was where the main money was. And so Steve would sit there watching Eric Clapton or I don't know the names of the other groups, but Led Zeppelin being big in America. And that was what Steve wanted. You know, that's what that Steve wanted. And, and, and I guess Andrew couldn't give a monkeys. I don't think he wasn't bothered. You know, I mean, he'd been there and done America, hadn't he really, mm, mm. you know, with the stones. So, but financially, I think it would have helped if the small faces would have been at a hit album in America, at least, you know, one. Yeah. Yeah. And he fell out with CBS too, I think, didn't he? And also there was the, wasn't there the controversy about the, the advert, the Kennedy-related advert for the nice? That he yeah, did? well, they started, Andrew started to not be very diplomatic, so anti-Vietnam War, so he used, you know, like you would say he was controlling, so the nice, I don't know if you've heard of the nice. Oh, yeah, yeah obviously. Yeah. Yeah. The nice, he made them put that Amer- <coughs> American flag on stage, Shocking adverts. Uh, so part of it, although Andrew said it was never a hobby horse. But it was an advert, wasn't it? Was specifically where the three members were wearing uh, JFK, Bobby Kennedy and, and Martin Luther King masks. Is that right? Yeah. With the yeah. slogan saying it's taken them for America 475 years to find itself and they're, and they're still looking. They took the nice seven minutes, 20 seconds or something. I mean, that is just unbelievable, really, isn't it? I think it was an instrumental that song. It was Stephen's well, song. It, well, it's, well, the, it, it's well, it's it, it, yeah, it's West Side Story, isn't it? I mean, that was the thing. It's a re, it's a standard instrumental version of a tune from West Side Story. But then at the end, you get a chill, a child's voice saying, "And I can remember this from 1968, whatever." America was pregnant with promise and possibility but was murdered by the hand of the inevitable. That was the end of the record. It was, And that must have been Andrew Eldham's idea. Yeah, I don't think that, that would occur to Keith Hemson. <laughs> no, it was, uh, and that was P.P. Arnold's daughter. Was it? Wow. The voice. Amazing. Yeah. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Another connection to the word in your ear. We talked to P.P. Arnold. Yeah. Yes. But then, then with that uh, America, so then... 
you talked about EMI, but in America they had distribution with CBS, right? Which was Clive Davis, who's still going, and uh, <laughs> and then Andrew really fell out with Clive Davis. You know, I think they say Clive Davis went to Monterey and he signed Lou Adler and Andrew Oldham and he thought he was going to get the Mamas and Papas and the Rolling Stones and he got neither. And then Andrew, and then he wouldn't promote immediate success properly, Andrew felt. And they had a big falling out. So Andrew threatened to kill Clive Davis. And, uh, you know, he was, what was he? He was like 23, 24. I mean... He was off his, he was off his, he was having electroshock therapy. You know, he was having electroshock therapy and he was going to put to sleep by Tony Hancock's doctor for a week. You know, this <laughs> is while he's running the record label. <laughs> while he's running the record label, he's, he's going for electric shock therapy and he's being advised to be put by to Tony sleep. Hancock's doctor. Like Tony Hancock. Yeah, Tony Hancock's doctor who didn't have a very good record, you know, because Tony Hancock had died not long ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so exactly. And, be, and Jet Harris, he was he treated Jet Harris. Oh, God. I've had them all. In, I've, all. I've had them all in the back of my cab. <laughs> <laughs> Jet Harris, Tony Hancock. Oh, yes, take a pull up a chair. Yeah. <laughs> so um it, it's uh you know, what's the kind of afterlife of immediate? I mean, somebody still owns the catalogue now, do they? I mean, does it get passed yeah. around from one owner to another? Well, well, the small faces were recently, well, were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And at the same time, the surviving members, which is only one now, isn't it, Kenny Jones, it the is. drummer? Yeah. They reissued all the classic immediate albums from that period and i think uh, rob kiger who ran immediate records for charlie because it went through sanctuary emi still home owned the publishing which is a which is the the big potato right and, uh, so it went through various hands but for 40 years andrew lou goldham had nothing to do with it although tony came back in on the scene with Patrick Meehan, who was a gangster, Patrick Meehan Sr. or Junior Junior, what, another of Don Arden's pals. It was all got very messy in the 70s. In fact, Don Arden threatened to kill Tony Calder. What's the matter? Did someone forget to pull the trigger? And um, and then, But then Andrew never had anything to do with it when it was Castle, Sanctuary, now Charlie. Uh so this immediate book is the first, first actual thing that has been uh, sanctioned by Andrew in about forty years, but the, it, all the box sets have come out since since CD. You know when it the CD boom, I guess, was mm -hmm. first great reissuing wave. So I think it still does quite well with box sets and for collectors, but. You know, it's just amazing that the kind of I was listening to one of the box sets yesterday, and just the the sheer amount of it is the, is what is absolutely startling. 
the amount of stuff they put out in quite a short period of time it is just something something else. And the range too. Yeah, Jimmy yeah. Tarbuck. Did you know Jimmy Tarbuck was on a meeting? I didn't. <laughs> Astonishing. Jimmy Tarbuck. I've not listened to that, but I, I do sometimes listen to Twinkle and uh, Soldier's Dream by Twinkle. And there's another one, a later one, by a band called The Hill, who I've never heard of before or after, uh, Sylvie, which is my daughter's youngest daughter's name. And that's a great song, Sylvie. Oh, and we've, we've forgotten the caravan lady. Uh, you know the lady Vashti who Bunyan? went to... Bunyan? Uh, Vashti, Vashti Bunyan? Vashti Bunyan, yeah. So she was another immediate... Uh, Act. I suppose that's the virtue of appointing your your hairdresser as A&R man, because that's what Andrew Oldham did at one point, didn't it? I'm um, pleased you mentioned that, because I was thinking about that. Why I, lo- why I loved Immediate was not only was the managing director having electric shock, but the hairdresser was in charge, was left in charge. <laughs> I mean, Wow. What a way to go! And I think it proves that it that it's you know the kind of putting a pin in the list of artists is is every bit as credible a, a, a way of forming an A and R policy as the most scientific alternative you can possibly yeah. imagine. Because your number of hits probably is going to be no greater or no smaller if you just if you appoint your hairdresser and say just get anything you fancy. Well, they did that. They pointed the hairdresser, and then in 1968, when the music industry was getting quite serious, they mocked up a group and made some demos and a, and a picture of the group, and they took them round all the record labels. The hairdresser took them round, I think, and taped the conversations he was having with all the sort of now serious, I make decisions about what the kids will hear sort of thing. And they taped it all and edited it all. Well, they got the band signed. They said, the guy said, oh, come back, remix this. They just took the same stuff back. He said, oh, yeah, it's wonderful. And then they stopped it, but they released that as a record. They edited it together and released it. So trying to make what point that the major labels were just inept? I think that was a point where they were trying to make, where it had got so daft. I don't know what point they were trying to make that. Self-sabotaging, <laughs> really, I would just... Making enemies rather than Making friends. enemies, certainly. Yeah. Making enemies rather than friends. So I think if that later period, a lot of friends, 65, who, who you talked about, Garrett, 65, 66, 67... And then maybe making enemies 68, 69, like the nice who Andrew fell out with. And he said, Yeah, when they were doing, he, he wanted to poison them. And they had Amen Corner as well. And he wanted to kill Amen Corner. And so <laughs> Mac they had. And he said, Oh, I'm getting rid of Fleetwood Mac. The guy butters his, butters his roll with the wrong knife. I'm getting rid <laughs> of. So making enemies, you know. So happy, so much for happy to be part of the industry of human happiness. So, you know, a couple of things about this book. You know, the um, one is the sheer density of what the Americans would call bold-faced, bold-type names on every page, which is just 
the amount, the number of people involved in in the number of people whose names you know who are involved in absolutely everything, you know, and so and so and so and so passes through, and so and so makes a record, and and so and so falls out with somebody, and then the other thing is is and in almost every relationship ends with, and then Andrew fell out with them and yeah. threatened to kill them. <laughs> it's a, it's what you would call a motif all the way through this yeah. book. Yeah. Well, what one review, Chris Charlesworth, who is a, a melody maker journalist yeah, from the you know. from the yeah. famous from the seventies, one of the lead ones in the seventies. He he wrote a review of this book that compared Andrew to Boris Johnson, which I'd never, which Andrew didn't respond to that review, but. Uh, yeah, um, and then threatened to kill them, yeah, or or tickle them to death. I don't know, you know, what is, you know, but he was a great, great man. You know, there's no doubt about that. He was, uh, there's no one who can hold a candle to him. And it really annoys me that um, George, Sir George Martin, gets all the accolades for putting a trumpet on John Lennon's head. Whereas Andrew has got this vast body. I know he's I know he's a crazy crackpot and he upsets a lot of people. And when he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he refused to go because <laughs> that's he fell out well, what, what can you what can you I expect to kill uh, hey, you see yeah. Andrew Andrew Eldham could no more stand up in front of a room full of people and go, Well, I'm thrilled to be here and to have the honor and make it sound convincing. He wouldn't, it's not his yeah. style at all, you know. Um, well, uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, it'd be, be completely off-brand to have gone in the first place, so he's right, really. But he still retained, one of the things you mentioned in the book is, you know, he put Mick Jagger and Keith Richards in a room and said, write songs, and which they did, and then he did a deal for publishing where he continued to earn money from the early Rolling Stones catalogue. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, 63 to 73 he owns... I think it's ten percent of the Rolling Stones songs. That's so the quite happy book. when Martin Scorsese makes a movie. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> you like that, yeah. That's the stuff that Well that's I, he picked all that stuff up when he was 17, 18. He knew all that from hanging around with Phil yeah. Spector. Uh, Phil Spector gave him advice. That's that's why yeah, he signed, right. didn't he? Immediately signed to a yeah. to, to separate company and then leased out. And they, they they owned some of the master tapes and stuff, didn't uh, they? Yeah, and, and as a kid he saw he worked for Mary Quant. So he saw how Mary Quant took what I guess was quite a niche, small boutique yeah. and made it world famous. So he'd seen what was possible and um, yeah, couldn't get into the, he refused the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I mean, I love him for all that. I I, I, I do, but I, I think his records stand up. I mean, you've heard a lot of those immediate yeah. records. They're great yeah. 60s records. And, and yeah. he continued, he produced Bobby Womack in the 70s. Donovan's album's pretty good in the 70s. People even like Brett Smiley, who he did in the 70s. Uh, it's fantastic read, really is. And it also comes in a handy, robust edition, which you can put in your back pocket, you know, which we think the back pocket is going to come back in a big way. It is. 
uh, in publishing. Oh, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping the back pocket because I've been sliding it in the side pocket. Oh, okay. And the front any, pocket. Any pocket, is, any pocket is possible. Yeah. Any pocket is possible. Yeah. yeah. Very good to talk to you. Immediate the, pocket. <laughs> the rise and fall of the UK's first independent record label. Simon Spence, nice to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much, fellas. Thank you. You're listening to a podcast from The Word.